The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I've been just seen over the years and it's so discouraging at times. The reorganizations and the money that's thrown at something that there's really a more direct path to dealing with. And we all should have a little paranoia. We shouldn't be James, James Angleton, but we should realize given the business we're in, that part of it is there are allies out there coming at us. I also think that in the cyberspace, we're a little sleepy on it. I think we're underestimating the real depth of it. Everybody recognizes cyber threat, but I I think it's like the way I was describing counterintelligence in the abstract, we're gonna do this and we're gonna do that. I think there's a real operation afoot and we're we're not tackling it head on. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 19th, 2021. Recent events have shown that Russian intelligence efforts against the United States and the West have continued since the end of the Cold War and perhaps increased in recent years. Vladimir Putin in particular appears determined to get even with us for the Russian losses at the end of the Cold War. What role has intelligence played in the Russian efforts, and what can the United States do about it? To get a unique perspective on this, I sat down in the Virtual Jungle studio with Jack Devine, who had been Associate Director of Operations at the CIA and served in many roles over some 30 years at the Central Intelligence Agency, including leading the covert action operation which drove the Russians out of Afghanistan. We talked about Russian aggression. We talked about what intelligence can do about it. We talked about what policies would be most effective against Russia. And we even talked about some old spy stories. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 19th. Russia through the Spy Master's Prism. Jack, thanks for joining us. And let me start before we jump into Russia and the, the tradecraft of espionage. Let me start with your career. Can you tell the listeners how you came to the Central Intelligence Agency and how you moved through that career, ending up helping to run all of United States intelligence operations? Well, I've often said this, I think I'm a bit of a fluke uh, in in the sense that nobody in my family had gone to uh, West Point or the State Department, attaches. I can't think of an immediate cousin that ever lived abroad. I think I had one cousin that worked in Belgium for a year. But what I was, what I'm getting at is I sort of have a, a, a parochial background. And uh, after graduate school, I was teaching high school in suburban Philadelphia. And my wife gave me a book. And you may remember David Wise. He used to write books that were, you know, hammered to CIA for its being part of the military intelligence complex. But I was a young I said postgraduate, and uh, I read it. Thought, wow, what an interesting place! So I wrote a letter. I mean, uh, and I'm going to come back back to that in a second. And uh, I said, you know, uh, you sound like a great place. Uh, I'd like to join. And uh, if you fast forward a couple of years ago, I have an opportunity to be at the agency, and they showed me the letter, and uh, it was a shock. I thought, my God, it's written in pen for one, right? And uh, I would like to think I've learned how to write a lot better than that. You know, it wasn't a great sales pitch, but however, however it unfolded, it uh, it must have been good enough. Led to an, led to an interview, yeah. And, and the next thing you know, I was in CIA, worked not far from 
from Rick Ames. And then I was in the CT training, our career training, you know, both the operational and paramilitary training. And when I left, you know, I learned Spanish and was on the desk uh, in Latin America. And next thing you know, it was in Chile, my first assignment when I ended as president. And, uh, and what a time to be in Chile, if I recall correctly. You know, it's history. For a lot of folks, there's, there's still, um, it's a flashpoint for a lot of folks. And there's still a lot of keen interest. I think there's many lessons learned as I, you know, spin out in, in Spymaster's prison. But what a first tour. I mean, it was a covert action tour for your listeners. Many of them are very uh, astute about the intelligence business. But for those that aren't, you have the espionage and then you have the action part. And they're both critically important. But most of our officers really don't get involved in covert action unless it's a paramilitary event like Vietnam or, or Iraq and Afghanistan. So it was an advanced advanced course, a master's degree in political action. So I thought I, I learned a great deal on, on, in that assignment and uh, it was very, very exciting. But that's how I got into the agency. And, you know, when you, one of the beauties of writing a book, and I know you've written several, you know, when you look back, you, you put your life in perspective in your career. And when, when you do so, you realize that it really had more, there was more shape to it than the ad hoc approach that, that, that I thought. And that was for one reason or other, I spent half my career in espionage, but I ran into more covert action operations. It was part of some of the biggest, the biggest ones, good, bad, and indifferent. I, I want to point out that I, that I was also involved reluctantly in the Iran-Contra affair. So but I saw a lot of it and, and whether I was being drawn to it or whether I was running to it or they were pulling to me is a bit of a, an enigma. But at the end of it, I felt that I actually did fit in very well. And I guess I fit in well enough that they let me stay there. So I, I like to have said I had a strategic plan. And when I was in eighth grade, I figured I was going to be a spy. <laughs> I was going to go do all these <laughs> things. And, it really didn't unfold that way, and uh, I'm very grateful for it. Well, you had a number of experiences that are that are fascinating. We want to focus here on Russia in particular, but I, I can't let a couple of things go by. One is the fact that you worked and, and got to know someone who is now infamous, and that is Rick Ames. If you could talk just for a little bit about how Rick Ames came off to you and the lesson you learned from having worked with somebody who had betrayed his country and led to the deaths of several of our Russian spies. Uh, it's a great question. Um, and I want to make sure I phrase this correctly. It was painful to know Ames. In other words, at the end of the day, to know a traitor, someone that betrayed this country and responsible for killing and there's no other way to phrase it. His information led to the death of 11 of our agents in Russia. It is a tremendously painful experience. And it's hard to say silver lining, but from an intelligence understanding point of view, the education of Jack Devine, to have known a spy, to really rub shoulders with them, the silver lining is you develop a, I would like to think I developed a richer understanding of the betrayal, this fundamental part of the betrayal aspect of our business. So, as I said, I, when I first met Rick, he was the son of a, a former CIA officer who worked in counterintelligence. There's some irony in this. And the father was a failed officer. Uh, Rick, unlike me, had actually had an assignment with, I mean, his father had an assignment in Thailand and uh, maybe in Burma, I think, but it was in Southeast Asia for sure. And the father had, you know, a terrible write-up on his performance. But Rick very early was, you know, in, embedded in an, an intelligence family, if you will, and understood the business. So when I ran into him, I mean, you know, beyond David Wise, I can't say I was a student of intelligence. I've spent a good part of my career trying to close that gap and trying to make myself a student of, of the subject uh, subject matter. But he could talk endlessly about spy cases and uh I even remember he gave me a book, A Coffin for Demetrius, um, by Eric Gambler, you know, one of these spy books of complicated betrayal. And there's an irony because he was he was a staunch anti-communist and a, you know, 
wanted to be in the Russia division. That's all he wanted to be. He wanted to work against Russians and he was fixated on it. But if you, as you track further in his career, he got what he wanted. He was in Russia division. They gave him great access. But what happened along the way, because he had an, in, an inherent trait, which I think is probably relevant in many spies and that betray traitors. And that is, they have a very high opinion of themselves. You know, he really thought he was brilliant intellectual and he wasn't, I mean, he, he certainly was well-read, but he had this great impression of himself and it didn't match his work ethic. <laughs> he was lazy and he did right. what he wanted to do. And so as his career went forward, it was a mediocre career. He had some opportunity to meet with some extraordinary spies of ours, Russian spies and so on. But his career was mediocre and people passed him by and he was never appreciated for this great, great talent. So I think that it's in this understanding that you get to what I think are one of the core motivators of betrayal. And that is the individual who really thinks they've got it together and they're really smart and the system, the system mm -hmm. isn't recognizing them. Right. And it's yeah. almost in every trader, every agent has some of that in them. I mean, there's enough examples to make exceptions, but, but it is ingredient. Hansen, same thing. You know, really mm -hmm. thought he was smarter than everybody else. So when you look at his money and the drinking and all those things are very interesting and, you know, he wouldn't be, he isn't the only one who had a drinking issue in the CIA. Actually, they're pretty modern and were many years ago trying to rehabilitate people because they know so much and get them back in the same job. And uh, he had a track record of it. And it was episodical. The difference between a drunk and alcoholic is probably not worth worrying about in espionage. Right. Let me move you to kind of the, the, the setup for your, your discussion of, of Russia here. Back in the mid-1990s, you helped to run the unit in CIA, alternatively known over the years as the Counter-Narcotics Center or the Crime and Narcotics Center. And it was there that you certainly noticed the post-Cold War effect on the CIA, which was cuts in budgets and personnel, assaults from Congress and the media about the CIA's operations and, in fact, its very existence, which you say set the seeds for diminished attention on Russia, which certainly grew after 9-11 and the shift of many resources to counterterrorism. So talk through that just a little bit about what you saw in the 1990s that before you departed at the end of that decade, what you saw that looked to you like, in effect, the agency was not going to be poised as well for the kinds of challenges that we have seen in recent years from the former superpower. Right. So I was in Rome in, uh, in 1990 and, you know, the wall had come down and uh, I remember the head of the service said, it's Pax Americana, <laughs> that the world is going to be controlled by the U.S. Mm -hmm. And if you could take your listeners back to the 90s, there was this sense, it wasn't a Republican, it wasn't a Democrat, it was a sense that we won the Cold War, uh, the Cold War is over, and... Uh, I remember Jim Woolsey, who was the director when I was up on the seventh floor. And Jim kept running around selling the message that, you know, instead of a single monster like Medusa, you've got all these tentacles and heads out there. We've got to, we've got to go after them all. And I don't think that ever sold. In other words, I think, yeah, 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 we got it, but we're really not going to over-invest. We're not going to invest in Russia so much. But I think the big difference, frankly, came with our involvement in and uh, putting ground forces in, in Iraq and, and Afghanistan, and the, the terrorism challenge, because when you shift the wars, you know, uh, the agency is a very flexible organization. Uh, it moves quickly, but you really can't, because of its size, you know, once you're in a war, all resources are depleted. And I know we talk about chewing gum and walking and bread and butter and all this, but the end of the day, when you start into the Vietnam, it's a, you are going to pay a price on other operational missions. And I think when you combine this mission of counterterrorism, it inevitably sucked out 
a lot of resources. And as I know right. in the book, I think we went from 70% devoted to the Russian target to 10% within a relatively short period of time. And people were comfortable with it. That was the problem. You know, the people felt that somehow Russia at its core had changed. Just because communism didn't go, went away didn't mean that didn't represent a challenge. And how was that going to play out? So, and, but I'm not trying to cast aspersions like, you know, there was a fount of wisdom over there that was challenging us. I mean, it was almost universal that the war was over and it was time to change. Mm-hmm. But we stayed on it way too long, in my view. Right, right. And now, you know, I, I read another book, uh, Good, Good Hunting, published in 2014. And I said, look, we're going to have national state, that nation, nation states are going to be our threat. And we really need to be shifting the resources. Terrorism is going to come down. It doesn't mean that tomorrow morning we're not going to have a devastating event. But as a major issue, major resource realignment, we need to be doing that. I, I think we've been slow in making that adjustment. Uh, I really don't think it takes wizardry either to anticipate that China was going to emerge as a major threat and challenge to us. So it was a hard sell. Counter-narcotics, and, and you mentioned that, what I saw there, the trifle was fascinating because I didn't want the job, <laughs> but it was the number one job at that point in the, in the ministry. Three, number three on the national priority list was narcotics. And the agency was reluctant to, to embrace it. And so was the Bureau. So we ended up with the DEA, great organization. But I'm, at the end, that you had to create it because the other institutions didn't want to embrace it. So mm-hmm. I was in that typical frame of mind that, you know, organized crime and so on. But when I got in there, what I found fascinating was indeed it was such a tremendous and ugly threat damaging our country. But what I found from an intelligence point of view, we, we were starting to do today what everybody and every kid understands is linkage analysis, you know, using computers to collect information. It was a new way of collecting. It was cross directors, intelligence, and analysts, operational, other agencies. And one fundamental thing, David, not to tease this out too much, we actually started giving liaison capabilities. Up until then, we had great relationships, but providing real capabilities to track traffickers and the new relationships with liaison developed. So I think it was a forerunner, along with terrorism, which was doing at least as much in this regard, how intelligence was going to be collected, shared, the targeting aspects of it really began in those centers. The divisions were not, and again, I don't want to get into the jargon of our business. But so while it was something I wasn't anxious to embrace, I really found it educational, but also terribly important. And and I was in the Afghan task force, the same thing. You know, when you bring different forces together, you have a much more dynamic, dynamic and powerful uh, enterprise. So I, I benefited from it. I hope the, the country benefited. I mean, Escobar did meet his demise during my tenure. I can't take credit for it, but we were the people that worked in narcotics were really very good and dedicated people. And a lot of people lost their lives out there or our friends, our allies did. So it's a, it's a big part of the, the growth and change in the intelligence business and how we did things. Big data. I mean, today it's revolutionary. It takes it for granted, but we went from the stone age to uh, jet airplanes overnight. All right, let's shift this to Russia. You use the phrase, which I used for George H.W. Bush in my book, you use it for Vladimir Putin, and they're both true in very different ways, of spy master president. Of course, Putin, having been a actual operative for the Russian government, why does that matter? How do you think that frames the substance and style of his governance and his policy? Well, actually, I, I enjoyed the fact that one of my favorite presidents, one of my favorite directors is uh, George H. Bush. And he was great, okay? I mean, he defended the agency. He, uh, his policies were temperate in how you use force. And this is very important when one analyzes covert action. But he wasn't a spy master, right? So I don't, I don't, I've taken anything away from it. I mean, right on. Great gentleman. I mean, a fantastic uh, executives deserve to be president. And I think his stock in history continues to grow, and I think rightfully so. Putin is the real thing. He <laughs> becomes a spy master, right? And I'm not, even, I'm not even recommend. I'm certainly not recommending spy masters for the presidency. But in his case, you know, just like I described my own 
pull towards the intelligence business, the operational business. It was there in him in a more defined way. At 17, he tried to join the KGB, wasn't accepted, eventually ended up in there. But, you know, uh, you know this from your, your writings and so on. To get into KGB, and particularly in the intelligence part of it, you had, you had to be part of the elite, not necessarily, I mean, in, in the sense that you had to be a really good student, you had to have language skills. And so he was a talented, he had talented resources there, but he was assigned to Dresden. And I think of all the KGB people that I know that either, you know, we drank champagne with them in Mexico or London or Rome. Dresden in the middle of the Cold War was not exactly the most cosmopolitan place you'd want to be. But he was in the dark shadow of, uh, as I've said before, the Carre and Carla and that, that world of East German intelligence. Do we know, uh, Jack, uh, let me interrupt here. Do we know if Putin got to know or even met Marcus Wolf or other legendary East German uh, spy masters? I couldn't establish that, but they overlap for about a year as far as when I look at the timeline. But Marcus Wolf was such a, a presence mm-hmm. in that business that even as a junior person, uh, relatively junior, I think it was a major, if I recall. I mean, it, I don't know the answer to that, but I, my bet if my guess would be, you know, he probably met him and, you know, like everyone else, held him in high regard because of, you know, his success, frankly, and his his approach, which is pretty dark if, if, when you look at it. So I, I don't know if he was in any way molded by Marcus Wolf, but I think he was molded by the environment, which is the heavier, dark, you know, the spy who came in from the cold kind of world. And you think that traces through to to his decision-making as president in Russia? I think the spy business, and you were in it, right? There's a lot of discipline with really good ones. And that is that we have in, engraved on the wall of our building, you know, make sure you got your facts right, you know, get your facts right, analysts, hard, hard thinking. And I, I think he, he had that. But here's another dimension, which a good covert action officer has. And I would like to think, you know, senior intelligence officers have. And that's a political dimension. And I don't mean Democrat Republic. I mean, ability to smell the politics in your country, the movement, what makes things tick. It's not just getting an intelligence report. So I think he was a a political animal from childhood. I think he knew how to move through the system. And he had mentors. I had mentors. I mean, I I think, you know, people that do well in institutions tend to find them. But he had people that grew up. But he learned along the way and became, I mean, at a very young age, he becomes the number one person in Russia. I mean, amazing. And you don't do that just because of, you know, your, your, your heart. I think he had a combination of, you know, of intelligence and knew how to look at things. And this is why I call it spy masters. There's a way of looking at events that I think is unique in the spy business because you, you have to absolutely leave aside your partisan feelings and how you want things to be and wish them to be. Right. And I think he has that mindset. What, who are the Americans you're looking at? This is the way I look at uh, Trump. This is the way I look at Biden. This is the way the Americans are going. He's, he's, is not what I would like them to be. It's, and so I think he has that approach. And then I think he understands the manipulation. I think he understands the, he's just instinctively a, a politician. Not a politician in the sense it's kissing babies, but whether it's the emotional IQ, the, or, or the, political IQ. It's one of being in a room and understanding everybody in the room and what play is going to be made on that, in that room. I think he has that. Mm-hmm. And I think he's formidable. He's damaged because he's carrying around with him uh, an old kit bag of the Cold War. There's this, he's implementing and he's punching well above his weight in the Cold War strategy. I mean, he, despite everything else, what he is doing is, you know, finding warm water reports, weakening your allies, has America as the number one potential adversary. In other words, he's still, he's still stuck in this. And he had to take the Ukraine back. There was no, there wasn't a lot of pondering there. This had to come back to Russia for Russia to be what it was like when he was there. So, yeah. I mean, I think he's a complicated 
leader, but there's an awful lot of telltale signs around him that clearly show that he would have been a success. He ended up being the head of the FSB, so he <laughs> he he knows how institutions work, and uh, he's a formidable adversary. But I think it's tragic for for the world and tragic for Russia and everyone else that he feels that we need to be adversaries. And even though we don't have communism and some ideological divide, some reason Russia and the United States has to be, have to be in adversarial positions. I happen to disagree with that, but it takes to the tango, you know, and sure. he's, he's not playing that game, not playing the strategy that I would hope for. So we now have to, and this is where I really want to hone in and I'm writing some other things today, you know, trying to get our beds out and so on. And that is, we didn't need to recognize that that is, a, you know, we're at the precipice of the Cold War if we're not in it. He has decided that he's going to implement that. And our our response is a little more ambiguous than I would like about how are we going to deal with it? I don't think there's a coherent strategic consensus in our country about how, how to deal with the challenge. And meddling in the United States, I, I just, that's a big change. And we have to have a corresponding response here. And I, 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 don't, I don't see that consensus. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. No, we, we certainly don't see that. And I think we'll, we'll probably close our conversation talking about some of these, these policy implications. But back to spying first. One of the one of the consequences of Putin being in power, but honestly it was true even before he was in power, was that the Russians never stopped spying against the United States as its primary adversary, to the point that you highlight that it is a statistical certainty in your mind that there are spies currently working for Russia in the United States government. On the one hand, that would point us towards a massive counterintelligence effort to to root out these spies that we know are there. On the other hand, you're quite aware of the downside that comes from a James Angleton level of excess in being so scared of the mole within that you actually hinder your own intelligence operations. So how do you address that middle road? Everyone I know in the business says, we have to be careful to address the threat and treat it as serious, but we can't go too far. Well, how do you do that? How do you know you've gone too far or not far enough? David, you may have been there when Haynes was arrested in 94. And uh, one of the seniors in the agency, he'll go nameless for this exercise, printed or had manufactured thousands of buttons, never again, right? And... I blushed because I knew we had Hansen out there. We had a spy. We didn't know he was in CIA and I was working with FBI people and our own people trying to find Hansen because the consensus of the, the research was he was in another, another Ames. But I thought at the time, do you know what kind of business you're in? I mean, I don't mean to be crass, but you know, <laughs> this is, you know, the minute, you know, if you look at the Ames case, we had 11 people <laughs> sitting, you know, at least 11, let me put it that way, at least 11 sitting there that he, that he ended up compromising. So and this was a weakness of the CIA. When we started to look for what went wrong, we knew there were compromises of data. And it took several years to get away from it. It's an electronic loss. It's a 
loans, loan tree with the Marine, and that was it. I would just say, take Jack the Vine's rule. There's, there's at least one of them in the building. And every year since since Ames, you can point to the fact that that chain is not broken. And I would hope, because I can't say, I would be, let's say, disappointed if we couldn't say the same about our, our adversary. It's the nature of the business. But your point is, how do you weight it? And one of the things that drives me crazy, and this is even on the terrorism threat, the cyber threat today, it's what systems, what processes can we put in place? Everybody's now going to sign a new form. We're going to have a new class, a new training program. You know, we're going to implement uh, new screening systems. Everybody's going to be polygraphed every month. You put all the systems in place, right? <laughs> yeah. And the truth of the matter, and this is true with terrorism and cyber. We're pending billions and billions of dollars, and yet the Russians are penetrating this with a fair amount of ease, right? And I hope we were doing the same. So we have a way of encumbering and putting these clouds, these bureaucratic things on it. The truth of the matter, there's another part of the book where I think I have it as a subtitle, actually. It takes a spy to catch a spy, right? So we right. should have forms. And yes, you should be polygraphed every once in a while, right? It's good for the soul. But you need a spy inside the system. It's the only way you can answer these questions. Do you have a spy? So you can do all the forms and checking just because someone has a Mercedes Benz, it doesn't mean that they're working for the enemy or they drink too much on Saturday night or they're in debt or they're lazy. So, uh, you know, you really need, in fact, every major spy case includes a compromise provided by one of our agents. There's a key piece because you all, it's very hard to get there without it. So I want to make sure when we do the counterintelligence, let's not throw $5 billion so we can build a new, training center it's you know just do the job right and get a spy inside of the the system i under i oversimplify it david but i've been just seen over the years and so discouraging at times the reorganizations and the money that's thrown at something that there's really a more direct path to dealing with it and we all should have a little paranoia we shouldn't be james james angleton but we should realize given the business we're in that and part of it is there are allies out there coming at us. I, I also think that in the cyberspace, we're, we're a little sleepy on it. Uh, I think we're underestimating the real depth of it. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody recognizes cyber threat, but I, I think it's like the way I was describing counterintelligence in the abstract, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. I think there's a real operation afoot and we're not, we're not tackling it head on. Well, let me talk about an implication of that. You've talked about the fact that the perhaps political leaders and maybe CIA leadership itself seems more averse to covert action than in the past. In some cases, for good reasons. In many cases, perhaps for bad reasons. But covert action, you say, is essential to stopping Russia and its resurgence. So I'm hoping you can talk through why. How is, how is covert action necessary as part of an overall foreign policy towards Russia involving sanctions and other things? And, and why the reluctance to be pursuing covert actions against a country that clearly is pursuing them against us and our allies at an increasing rate, including things like assassinations in Europe? This is a big question that we mentioned before. There, there are big questions. And one is, you're absolutely right. The agency, there's only one clause in the founding charter that authorizes covert action is this CIA will carry out those special activities as directed by the president of the United States. Right. It is a powerful mandate. And I remember an executive uh, director, once I sat down and brought out a chart, he said, let me show you a chart about the agency's manpower and budget. And let me match it up with its morale. I'm just going to run for you the line on covert action. And guess what? Where the agency was most relevant, where the president was actually calling and wanted to know what was going on and have something done, was when you had the covert action programs and you had the morale was higher and more people, more budgets. And when it wasn't around, there were the periods of demoralization. Now, if you talk to an average CIA officer, and you know many of them, there's, I want nothing to do with covert action. I, want, I came here to be a spy master. I don't want to touch it. But if you'd stand back from it and say, well, the president has diplomacy in the State Department. He has the Defense Department. And if we look at the wars we've been in lately, 
you know, I would say, you know, by all means, let's use our diplomacy. But I would say before you go military, make sure you haven't passed too, too quickly passed covert action. And if you do the analysis in Afghanistan, I think our effort there in covert action to get the Russians out of Afghanistan is a casebook study of high quality covert action. No Americans lost their lives, no American foot soldiers, peanuts in comparison to a budget. I mean, in those days, a billion dollars a year, big, that was a big deal. And we worked with insurgents on the ground. And if they, you don't have insurgents that are willing to fight and they have a goal and it matches yours, you shouldn't do covert action. So I go to great pains in both books about what makes for, for covert action. So I'm an advocate for it, but I'm an advocate in a very selective way. You have to have, have the conditions. But the, as I said, a lot of folks in CIA don't, they don't know what's good for them, if you will. Having said that, where do you get the most headaches in the congressional investigations? And we have the bravest people, I match them up with just about anybody in the world, except when it comes to investigations and media, and there they're gun shy, right? So where do you get trouble? And I mentioned Iran Contra. On the one hand, you can have a great effort to drive the Russians out, but then you end up with an Iran-Contra mess. And even Chile, as I said back, I learned early on, what are the ramifications? But you've got to pay, you've got to pay, you have to pay that price. So I think it's a great tool. And when you look at Russia today, we're in a new war. That's a cyber war. That's a covert war. No one's going to stand up and ever have a meaningful treaty on cyber. This battle is being carried out below the ground and, and below the surface. So covert action in that arena the Russians are clearly using it. This is not, not let's leave assassinations out because I think that's a footnote. I mean, not terrible, terrible event, but that isn't where the real war is. The war is in undermining uh, this country politically through cyber, which is a really big threat, and then how deeply they're into our system and an awareness to it. So I think there is an amazing, it's not putting in more systems and buying and getting more contractors and mm. and so on. I, I think there's a role for covert action, but it has to be studied. If you want to know why I write books, one of the main reasons is I've got this fixation about my colleagues, my colleagues everybody understanding covert action, its limitations and opportunities. Yeah. And I think we've sometimes gone into war when we should have gone down a road of surrogates and, and indirect support. Right. One of one of the most successful covert actions in the last several decades was the uh, CIA's military buildup and cooperation with the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, but most especially the introduction of the Stinger missile, a game changer in the conflict there. Is there any parallel for that now? That that obviously was the introduction of Soviet troops into a neighboring country, very different than the cyber realm where an effective covert action could be something devastating, but not as tangible as the Stinger missile. Do you think such a thing is, is even possible in today's environment? Well, I was in charge of the Afghan program when it, in, it went in. I was the one that went over and negotiated how many we were going to get. Mm -hmm. I wasn't very popular at DOD. We had no idea that, the, well, we had from General Dynamics an estimate that it had a 25% success rate. It had 75 plus. But it also changed the strategy. And we, I, I'll tell you, I, I was sitting there, I was in charge of it. I didn't know it would change the strategy. I just thought it enables to get the weapons across the ground and we'd be more forceful. But once they flew, flew above the range of the Stinger, all that pressure ran across the board and the Russians actually backed down. But it was all visible. By that, I mean, maybe in Washington, you couldn't see this thing. But on the ground, it's a, an item, you can see it. You can see it, okay. Cyber, and this is what I'm saying, we need rules. We really need, and I go into this in, in the book, we need an understanding, which we had with the Russians, as loose as it was in, in the Cold War. We wouldn't counterfeit money. We wouldn't beat up their officers, and they wouldn't beat up ours. There's a couple examples that didn't hold, but as a general rule, you know, it was, it was indeed valid. We don't have rules. In other words, there's the rules of engagement in cyber, and you, you alluded to it a couple of times, it's invisible. 
So we have to make it a little bit more visible. Wait, this is a kind this is an oxymoron. We have to make it more visible below the surface. In other words, you have to have an understanding. You're just not going to get it in public. Nobody's going to admit that they're doing anything. But if we don't, if we don't come up with an understanding that we're not going to meddle, which I believe was the understanding up until very recently in Putin's time in office. And as we had understanding, we were not going to meddle internally in each other's countries. We'd fight everywhere else, but not in each other's countries. A mm-hmm. couple examples, but today he's taking it to us. Right. And the question is, and that's covert action in its purest form. And what's our response? I'm not sure I see it yet. I know President Biden said there'll be unseen uh, reaction to, to some of the aggression and some of the aggressive acts by the Russians. I'm assuming, this is an assumption, you didn't say it, that if it's unseen, it's probably in the cyber world. Now we're getting into very tricky and treacherous waters. Mm. And we need, someone needs to sit down, well, somebody's, maybe we won't be able to arrive at it. But this is what I was saying earlier, David. We're in a cold war. We're, we're, we actually have a war going on in mm. cyber. And unlike the visible one you were describing in the battlefields of Afghanistan, you can't get a handle around it. Yeah. My concern here isn't just about the specifics of covert action and uh, the cyber versus the physical domain, but about your larger point about that U.S. foreign policy needs to make clear to Russia to ensure that Russia is in no doubt of American resolve to protect its democratic institutions and its allies to respond forcefully to Russian interference. And you say that like it's easy, but I fear that what we've seen in recent years is a true lack of consensus about that from what used to be a bipartisan consensus. We're not seeing everyone in political leadership at the national level agreeing that there even has been a coordinated attack on democratic institutions. And in fact, some people seem to think that those democratic institutions aren't necessarily worth defending, which they they might have said before. So are you fundamentally optimistic that we are able politically to address the Russian threat and to have this unified resolve against interference and these violations of rules and norms that you've highlighted? Or are you pessimistic because those fundamental things that are necessary to confront Russia at that level no longer obtain? Right. So I never meant to apply that it was easy to me. Let me say that. In fact, in the book, uh, when I talk about covert action, I, I draw from the philosophers of the 13th century on What's a just war? But I've added three or four of Jack Devine's own principles. And one of them is don't do covert action unless you have bipartisan support. In other words, whatever they tell you in the White House, you need to argue until you Mm -hmm. fall that you need a consensus. So this is a real, your point is, points up the real problem. I've been asked several times, is the United States up to fight, you know, the challenge of the Russians and the Chinese and, you know, and the cyber world? Well, I would just flat out tell you from my personal perspective, I think we're tremendously powerful. We tend to underrate just how powerful we are. And the foreigners tend to get it a lot better than we, we do ourselves. But the ability to exert power and around the world and cyber would take your field. We have. So I'm optimistic that we have the capabilities, right? But the the fundamental question that you put before us is, you know, we need, desperately need a new consensus that crosses party lines about what are the real threats and what is in the best interest of this country and how do we deal with it? Now, when I went down and talked about Afghanistan to the Senate, I couldn't tell you that there, I knew the difference for sure, between Republican and Democrats, they were just trying to push support to me. How much more do you need, right? Well, that's what you want. The poor fellows that went down on Central America, they got hammered and it was highly partisan, right? So the point is we're, we don't, we need to get back. And I don't know where this comes from. Some, some great podcasts like yours or from, from some great thinker like uh, George Kennan or someone has to start of some sort of, a trend, if you will, however trends start, mm-hmm. that brings us back, back to the core on a unified national security agenda. 
I think it will come, unfortunately, will be an, an incident that's threatening to our country where we're forced to the table to recognize that we have to do it. But that is the, it's usually too little too late when that happens. So I share, I share your, what I think is your modest pessimism about being able to do that. Skeptical realism, perhaps, but that's probably a way that I would, I could sign up to that. On the one hand, there is that concern about whether it it is possible to have a, a unified consensus about defending democratic institutions. On the other hand, if there is, if there is a, a unified bipartisan consensus about what the United States must do on big geostrategic issues, it looks like that will be on China, not on Russia. And I don't want to get into the espionage threat that comes from China, which is significant and uh, somewhat different than the Russian threat. But I want to put it to you this way. Do you fear that to the extent that China becomes the new center of that level of attention, that we will not be able to focus enough resources on the persistent Russian threat? Well, I think we're living with that today. I, I just think there's a there is a consensus that Russia is going to be the geopolitical, economic, military threat for the foreseeable future, right? And so, therefore, the, both parties, for different sets of reasons, are coming to that. Where I see this great reluctance is recognizing the significance. Of, it's not espionage. It's not the fact that they're in our country spying. Okay, that's fair game in the world of espionage, right? But that they're using it politically is huge. The Chinese are not using it politically. They're not trying to foster not a coup here, not the stabilizing. But if you look at it from my perspective, 2016 isn't about the political leaders. It's about an effort to have us chewing on each other's ankles and far exceeded any of their expectations. So I think it's too easy to dust off the the Russians as, oh, they're good espionage people and they're in here collecting our intelligence and the Chinese are. What I don't think we're coming to grips with is their strategy. This is not a secret. Their strategy, part of it is to use disinformation, using the cyber to keep us Weak politically, not to destroy us, but it's part of an overall strategy with your competitor. And we don't, to me, the Chinese aren't doing this. They're not, they are absolutely aren't mucking around. They just came out with a report saying they looked at maybe mucking around in the 2020 election. They decided the risks were too high because the political cannot. The Russians and Putin, are, he's a big risk taker. He's decided he can let this roll. So I don't think we're coming to terms with it. I mean, there's different reasons why people have different positions on it. But it has nothing to do with the, our political party. I mean, it's very little to do with their objective about the political parties. The parties are just a, a tool to undermine what I believe is the strength, our political strength, and, and deny us the ability to get a consensus. They're not that effective, but that's the objective. Finally, for today, you've noted that our policies, as a as U.S. government policies toward Russia, so far have not appeared to be producing the effect we want. That is, Putin does not appear to be deterred from his interventions in the political systems of the West, in his apparent license for assassination squads in Europe, and of course, actions like we've seen in Ukraine and elsewhere. And you call for a stronger response. And I'm curious what that looks like in your mind. Obviously, we need a robust intelligence effort to get at not just military and intelligence targets in Russia, but to get at core issues of policy. What are Putin's red lines? What is he facing within the Russian bureaucracy itself in terms of readiness for his strategic goals? But what do you think the United States can do that is a stronger response that would not, in fact, reinforce Putin's own worldview of encirclement and a West that will never truly let Russia into the club, no matter what he would do? So I think there's a couple steps that are are in the process. Uh, it's not just taking a particular course of action. I think there's a process. The process begins with, and let's assume this is taking place. First of all, you need good intelligence. In order to strategize here, in order to talk about what Putin's up to, I hope we've got the coverage that we need. and We, we can we can both speculate on that. But if we don't have it, we, we need to get better intelligence so we can go to the table 
in the smartest way possible, like a good spy, spy master. But the second thing is we need to, and I'm sure people say, oh, we've done it already, but when you say you've done things, there's a lot of different ways of, of doing something. And that is the head of the intelligence service or whatever, sitting down and saying, look, putting the cards on the table, if you will, in a more candid way and say, how are we going to do this? I want us to return to some understood, if not written treaty, but what are we not going to do? And that the, the agenda should be, if you have to stop meddling inside our country, and you are, and that's step one, you have to tell them ahead of time. And I think you have to do it in, in certain terms, and they're going to say we're not doing it or whatever. And then I think you're brought to the point where when it's uncovered that they have done that once more, then the you have to sit down on this side as we do in all operations and try to come up with a commensurate response that is visible to them. In other words, they know that we have responded to that task. And then you go back to the table again. And before you have a full-blown war trying to do everything you can, I mean, I think we need to walk this cat back. But I think just sitting with, you know, strategic patience and hoping somehow it all works out in time is, I, I think we're beyond that now. I think your moves in the Ukraine and my response to it, I think was not, was less than I would have hoped for. I think they're now, you know, they're, they're pursuing a, a strong policy that is under, designed to undermine this abroad and here. And I think we need to actually get beyond the sanctions. I think the sanctions are an important opportunity. And David, I just want to finish this point. I really think we should have a good relationship with Russia, right? We don't have to do this, but if, if Putin isn't going to play ball on it, then I think, I think we're stuck with this and we have to, we have to step up to the plate. You know, it's time. We, 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 we've got to respond, tell them ahead of time, and then we have to do it. And I think we need to get on this now. He's ignored every other polite way of talking to him. Well, Jack, thanks for sharing with us your thoughts, your reflections, and your insights on the fight against Russian aggression through your Spymaster's prism. We appreciate it. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the podcast, rate the podcast, tweet about the podcast, and visit the Lawfare store to buy merchandise related to the podcast and Lawfare. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Patja Howell. Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo Studio was our audio engineer, and Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.